Secretary, Dr. Melanie Thompson, who's the principal investigator of the AIDS Research Consortium of Atlanta and our chair of our IAS USA antiretroviral guidelines panel. Melanie probably doesn't remember this, but when I was a fellow at WashU, I was advised to go around and kind of figure out what it is I really wanted to do in life. And Bill Paddley, who was my, my chief at the time, said, go interview in pharmaceutical, go interview in academic, and go down to Atlanta and meet Dr. Melanie Thompson because she's got this awesome private practice and does a lot of clinical trials. And at the time, the CPCRA was very active doing different things. And I don't know if Melanie remembers this or not, but she gave me some really good advice. And uh, so thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. So I'm going to take all the credit for Judy turning out well, really. All right. Um, I want to thank all of you for um, occupying the Marriott this morning instead of occupying Wall Street. We appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So I have a couple of questions for you here um, to begin. Uh, I guess we're going to start with a case. Um, I want to see uh, what you brought away from the, the morning lecture from Dr. Gallant. Um, so in your clinic, you have a 33-year-old woman who comes to the clinic with the following labs. She has a CD4 cell count of 395. She has a viral load of 125,000. Genotype is wild type. Tropism is CCR5, so she's kind of wide open in terms of choices. She has had an inconsistent pattern of clinic visit adherence over the last three years, uh, and she's not been interested in antiretroviral therapy, but now she's gotten married and she says that she wants to engage in care. Um, the point of that little exercise was to pick up the issue that if you choose rolpivirine, there are a couple of problems there because of the high viral load. And because of the issue of intermittent adherence um, for clinic visits, and that might not be uh, the best choice um, in that particular Okay, so now we move along. Um, you know, we haven't had a lot of activity in nucleosides in a while. Uh, so now we are beginning to see a little more activity in the nucleoside, uh, nucleotide area. Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, Bristol-Myers-Squibb drug uh, which is now called festinavir. Uh, this is a drug that is structurally similar to D4T. Uh, and you might say, oh, is that a good thing or not? Um, but think of it as D4T, uh, and they've tried to subtract the toxicity from D4T. Uh, it actually is a weak inhibitor of human DNA polymerase and has low mitochondrial toxicity so far. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the tenofovir prodrug, uh, 7340. And finally, uh, I'm not going to say really th anything about the DAPD data because DAPD is still in trials, but just want you to know that it's still alive. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about um, protides for DAPD and acyclovir. So first, festinavir. Um, so these, uh, this is the monotherapy study for festinavir, uh, it was a 10-day study with dose uh, ranging cohorts from 100 milligrams QD to 400 milligrams QD. 
And this was in uh, treatment-experienced patients. And I'm just going to show you the bottom line here, which um, so these are the dose uh, cohorts, and even for the lowest dose of 100 milligrams, you got uh, more than a half, a half log reduction at day 11. And for the highest, uh, for the 300 milligram dose, actually uh, the best viral load reduction was seen, and that was nearly one and a half logs. Uh, interestingly, the 600 milligram dose did not perform as well as the 300 milligram dose, so they are now looking at a 400 milligram dose. Uh, the drug is now in phase two clinical trials. Uh, there's a slide in your handout about safety. I'm not going to go over it, but, uh, you know, for 10 days there were a spattering of mild uh, adverse events that were mostly thought not to be related to drug. So I think this, this will be interesting to watch as it goes through the clinical trials process. Now, what about the tenofovir prodrug, uh, GS3340? This also has been looked at in a monotherapy study. This is a 14-day monotherapy study. This was in treatment-naive patients, and they were randomized to tenofovir or two doses of the prodrug, 50 milligrams or 150 milligrams. Uh, and this is once daily dosing. So I want to point out on this graph of the virologic results, okay, here's the 14 days. This is tenofovir, and you see a pretty typical curve for tenofovir down about a log reduction. But both of the doses of the prodrug showed a much more rapid response. So this, this phase one decay was really much more rapid uh, and deep over a period of 14 days. So for both 50 and 150 milligrams, there was an excellent response over 14 days. And here's the interesting part. Uh, in plasma, the tenofovir levels were lower, significantly lower for both of the prodrugs over a 24-hour period. So the AUC was lower for both drugs. But if you look in the PBMCs, what you see is substantial increase in levels in the PBMCs. So for both doses compared with tenofovir, which is the white bar. So what does this mean? Well, hard to tell until it goes into real uh, longer-term clinical trials, but the idea might be that it could mitigate some of the tenofovir toxicity that we see. Uh, also, interestingly, apparently it's cheaper to make, and wouldn't that be nice? So. So here's a new word, a new word for me, uh, maybe for you, protide. So uh, this is work done by Ray Shinazi and others, looking at DAPD, a nucleoside, um, and basically modifying this drug to make it a protide, which basically means that uh, it had increased activity against HIV, and hepatitis B, because this drug does have activity against both. And what you see when uh, the drug is pre-phosphorylated is that you get a 70-time increase in potency of the metabolite, which is active of DAPD, the DXG, uh, against HIV. And against hepatitis B, you get a 34-fold increase in the potency of the active metabolite. So uh, this is an interesting strategy, a drug, and phosphorylated 
uh, and uh, increase its potency. And in this one, you get a hundredfold higher um, level PBMCs with the protide than with the parent drug. So let's take a little trip through ancient history. Um, some of you remember 1994 in HIV therapy. Not a great time. Um, we didn't really have the armamentarium, so we talked about things like acyclovir. So acyclovir was looked at in a couple of uh, large uh, observational studies, meta-analyses, and it was found that acyclovir increased survival uh, in an analysis done by David Cooper in Australia in patients who were on AZT monotherapy. And then uh, the folks with the MAC study, Dan Stein, did an analysis saying, yeah, acyclovir is associated with increased survival in the MAC study. And then there was this guy, Gallant. We don't hear much about him these days. <laughs> but, but he and the, the AZT uh, uh, epidemiology study group did an analysis that said, no, we really don't find that, um, and actually it may increase mortality. So then protease inhibitors came along, and who cared anymore? Uh, but guess what? Acyclovir is back. And it's back. Uh, I'm sorry that this is so busy. It is in your handout, and I'll try to hit the highlights. It's back in the same protide kind of formulation. So what they're doing is the, they looked at the phosphorylated form of acyclovir in people who have herpes and HIV. They looked at tissue explants, and it turns out that this phosphorylated form of acyclovir inhibits HIV, even some multidrug resistant HIV. And so what they then did, oops, let's go back. Uh, what they then did was to phosphorylate these protides, uh, or phosphorylate uh, acyclovir and make it a protide. And so that bypasses this requirement of phosphorylation in the cell. And it turns out, and this is all work in the lab, this is not work in people. Um, in those tissue transplants, the protide of acyclovir inhibited HIV and the tissue explants were lymphoid and also cervical vaginal. And it was very potent uh, against HIV. And importantly, in the presence of ribavirin, there was a, a synergistic effect, and the uh, activity increased about 40 times uh, at max. So all I'm saying, I'm not saying anything about treating people with acyclovir. That's not what this is about. I'm just saying people are doing some interesting work with phosphorylation, making new, uh, uh, new drugs out of old drugs, and we'll see where this goes. Okay, so uh, Joel did my work for me on most of the non-nukes, so I won't talk about repulverine and uh, lurseverine. Um, I will just mention that there is another non-nuke from GlaxoSmithKline that actually has had a fair amount of data presented, most recently at ICAC, uh, where uh, there were two monotherapy studies presented, and this drug looked potent uh, and, uh, and looked well-tolerated, except there were a few seizures that were seen uh, in, in this, with this drug, and the FDA has now put the drug on a clinical hold. 
So it's unclear whether these are drug-related or not, but it's a very early phase drug, so um, the decisions will be made about that uh, as we go along. Protease inhibitors. Uh, has not, there have not been a lot of activities around protease inhibitors lately. Uh, Tebotech has one in its pipeline, um, this one. But there's something interesting happening. Who knows what it's going to turn out to be? A company called Concert is taking an atazanavir-like drug, and they're substituting deuterium. It makes the patient glow in the dark. No, just kidding. Um, it's not that kind of deuterium. It's not radioactive. Um, but actually, it, it appears to increase the strength of the, the carbon bonds, and it changes the PK for atazanavir so that this drug no longer needs boosting by a PK booster. So that's an interesting thing, and this, uh, these drugs are now going into phase one studies. What about integrase inhibitors? Again, my job has been done for me uh, in large part. Thank you very much, Joel. Um, Dolutegravir, Elvitegravir, you've already heard about this morning. Um, I want to mention a new class of integrase inhibitors. So these other drugs we've talked about are all strand transfer integrase inhibitors. Now we have a new class of integrase inhibitors beginning to emerge, and these are the non-catalytic site integrase inhibitors. And uh, the first one of these comes from Beringer Ingelheim, although um, hot off the press last week, Beringer Ingelheim has entered into an agreement with Gilead, and Gilead will be developing this drug. So this is a once-daily drug. It has minimal cytochrome interactions. It is at least additive with the strand transfer inhibitors, opening up interesting possibilities for dual therapy. And it has non-overlapping resistance profiles, and that's something that I think we may find very important it's now in phase one studies, and, um, and, and I'd just like to show you the in vitro work. This is not clinical work. It's in vitro work um, looking at uh, these recombinant viruses. And if you look, this is the line for uh, the uh, non-catalytic integrase inhibitor, and these are elvitegravir and raltegravir. And I think what you can see is virus resistant to elvitegravir and raltegravir remain sensitive to the non-catalytic site integrase inhibitor. And the reverse was also true. So virus that was highly resistant to the non-catalytic site integrase inhibitor remained sensitive to the strand transfer integrase inhibitors. So I, I think we're having, a, this is an interesting moment because we're beginning to uh, increase the breadth of our uh, possibilities with integrase inhibitors, but again, this is phase one work. I want to mention PK boosters. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about cobacystat, but just wanted you to know that there are other things in the work. This works. Um, it's kind of been a holy grail to come up with a PK booster that did not have toxicity. Uh, and so several other companies are working on PK boosters. But I'd like to show you and actually, I don't like showing these things, um, science by press release. Um, these are not peer-reviewed data. They are press release data, but I think they are important, and you may have already heard of them. Uh, these are press releases from Gilead about their two studies with their quad regimen. The quad pill is the first four drug in one pill. Uh, Elvitegravir, 
Cobasystat, tenofovir, and FTC. And what they've done is to have companion studies in treatment-naive patients over 48 weeks. This first study, 102, actually looked at this drug compared um, with the once-daily combination of efavirenz, tenofovir, FTC. And what they found was excellent viral suppression that met the non-inferiority boundary, which was minus 12%. So very good virologic suppression in both arms, good CD4 cell increases, and really no difference in terms of discontinuations for adverse events. And then the companion study took the same quad compound, compared it directly with avazanavir, ritonavir, and TDF, FTC. So really you're looking at albutegravir, cobacistat versus adizanavir, ritonavir, and what happened here was almost the same thing. So very good virologic suppression, uh, met the non-inferiority rule, and in this one, a little bit different adverse event profile, the discontinuation for adverse events was lower in the quad arm, and this was primarily because of hyperbilirubinemia in the adizanavir arm. Okay, so let's shift a little bit, um, but before I go there, I just want to say, in terms of fixed dose combinations, that now gives us uh, a number of fixed dose combinations. Uh, there are several others in the works. Uh, Dolutegravir is being looked at with a Bacavir and 3TC as a fixed dose combination. And also, uh, a, a, there's the thought of doing a fixed dose combination with Darunavir, Cobacistat, tenofovir, and FTC. And that is in a, a study now to look at um, darunavir and cobacistat together, uh, not as a fixed dose, but uh, as individual components. Okay, so uh, let's move to the CCR5 inhibitors. Um, the only one I'm going to talk about in detail is uh, Sinequibarac, which is a Tobira drug. And this is the farthest along. The data I'm going to present this morning are really uh, the proof of concept data that are um, published now. The interesting thing about this drug is not only does it block CCR5, it also blocks CCR2. And CCR2 mediates an inflammatory cascade. And uh, so it's unclear what this means clinically but it could have implications for these inflammatory-based diseases that we see. At least that's the hope. So this was a uh, uh, randomized double-blind study in treatment experienced patients. It was a 10-day monotherapy study looking at doses, and they measured, in addition to the usual virologic uh, markers, uh, monocyte chemoattractant protein. MCP is actually the ligand for CCR2. And so this is one way of looking at blocking of CCR2. And so these are the virologic results. And what you'll see here is that the nadir of the virologic response was about 1.8 logs at the 75 milligram dose. So not bad for a monotherapy compound. And then this is data on a single patient and you see um, a fairly substantial viral load decline. And remember, this was a 10-day study, but you consider, continue to see viral load decline up to 15 days in this patient. 
Um, this is the MCP concentration, which went up, indicating probably that there is um, uh, blockage of the CCR2 by the drug. And then uh, the high sensitivity CRP level, a marker of inflammation, actually went down in this patient. So it's a single patient uh, uh, data set, but there are other patients who exhibited similar profiles on this particular study. The drug is now in a phase two study, uh, looking at two different doses against uh, an efavirenz compound. So that gets us into this idea of entry strategies, blocking entry. And so what I'd like to do is present uh, two new strategies that are being looked at to block entry. And these are entirely different than, than anything we've seen so far. First of all, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb has a small molecule attachment inhibitor. We already heard earlier today about a monoclonal antibody that blocks uh, binding to C uh, CD4. So this is a small molecule oral drug that um, acts right here on GP120. And what happens is that it causes a conformational change in GP120 so that it disrupts binding to CD4 and subsequent binding to the chemokine receptor. So that is the idea behind this uh, attachment inhibitor. And this is the study design uh, for the proof of concept study. Um, this was a study in which they looked at dosing every 12 hours or once daily. They also looked at dosing with ritonavir or without ritonavir. And this is a small study, 10 patients in each one of these uh, dose levels, a couple of different dose levels looked at. And so of the baseline characteristics, I only want to point out this bottom line. And it turns out that they may have come up with a clinical cutoff in terms of resistance. Um, so the patients uh, who had an IC50 of less than 0.1 nanomolar had a much improved response. And if you look at uh, particularly this arm where only six out of 10 had that cutoff, that arm actually did not fare as well. And I'll show you these data. Um, these are the data that show those patients who had the poor um, IC50s thrown out, in essence. And if I showed you the data, the intent to treat data, you would see something in this arm uh, that leveled out about here. If you throw those patients out, then basically you get a very good virologic response comparable to the other arms. Is it fair to throw patients out? Well, I think this is one way we go about looking at resistance and, and which patients are appropriate to put on, on certain drugs. So, uh, so luckily it seems that early on they've identified a characteristic that may improve response to this drug. But the overall response was about uh, 1.7 log reduction. Um, in, in a 10-day monotherapy study. Oh, and there it is. Okay. Uh, what about adverse events? Again, very, very busy slide. Only look at the bottom part here. Um, some usual nondescript adverse events like headache, uh, nasopharyngitis, 
there was um, about a 16% overall incidence of rash, not serious rash. These were all um, low uh, severity events. Micturition um, urgency, we don't see that one very much. That would be one to watch uh, at, a, at a rate of about 14%. Not sure uh, whether that's going to end up being drug-related or not. And because we are dealing with envelope, this gets us into a whole different ballpark in terms of resistance. Um, and it turns out that this inhibitor actually um, is very, very potent against subtype B in particular, but also subtypes A and C. So that's a good thing for those of us here because we mainly see uh, subtype B in particular. But if you happen to be in Southeast Asia where there's a lot of AE, this drug doesn't work. So it's a very interesting um, phenomenon that is bound uh, to the characteristics of envelopes. So highly resistant for AE. Okay, so I want to end with a few words about um, the zinc finger nuclease study, uh, which has gotten a lot of press lately. So the strategy of this study came from the single patient who appears to have been cured of HIV. And I'm sure everyone has heard of the Berlin patient. Okay, so if not, if you haven't heard, this is a guy who um, had a need because of leukemia for a bone marrow transplant. And his doctor, who was not an HIV doctor, by the way, just said, you know, hey, what if we give him this CCR5 deletion, uh, uh, cells from a CCR5 deletion uh, donor, and see if it makes any difference. And so that's what they did. They gave him uh, cells that had uh, a delta 32 deletion, two deletions in the CCR5 area. And we know that these people in general are more resistant to getting HIV infection. So it turns out that this gentleman, once he received this um, treatment, became aviremic and to this day is aviremic without any antiretroviral therapy. So this is not a practical strategy, okay? This is a dangerous strategy. It's not practical. Um, and it wouldn't fit under the Affordable Health Care Act, I'm sure. Um, but who would want to do that? So, so now I think what the interesting thing is that people are taking this concept and trying to come up with other ways to do it. So a company called Sangamo has come up with a zinc finger nuclease. And what this is, is a, uh, they take a restriction endonuclease, okay, uh, a protein that cuts DNA. They make these zinc finger proteins, and these are very, very specifically crafted proteins. They put two proteins on this endonuclease, okay. Then they do a leukophoresis on the patient. They take the cells from the leukophoresis, they introduce this using an adenovirus vector that then transduces enriched CD4 cells from the leukophoresis. And then they, um, you know, that's where magic happens. And then they cryopreserve these cells. And the part in the box, the magic part in the box, is that this restriction endonuclease is going to do its job of cutting DNA. 
But they have designed these zinc finger proteins so that they will latch on to the DNA of the CCR5 gene. And they're going to cut right through that CCR5 gene. And then the body does what it tries to do all the time, repair that cut, except it makes mistakes. It leaves out a few bases here and there. It's not perfect. And so this imperfection in the CCR5 gene then makes a CCR5 receptor that is also imperfect. And, and the idea then is how resistant is this to infection by HIV? So then they cryopreserve the cells, they reinfuse them into the patients. So this is their phase one study. Um, it is open label, of course, why wouldn't it be? Um, six patients, so we're only talking about a small number of patients here. They get a single infusion of 10 billion cells, give or take a few hundred thousand. Who's going to count? Um, and then they, after four weeks, they interrupt treatment. And they have a 12-week treatment interruption. And then the outcomes of the study are to look, of course, at safety. They want to look at the changes in CD4 cell counts uh, and ratios. They want to look at the persistence of these new cells. How long do they last? And, of course, the really interesting part is what happens to viral load during treatment interruption. And so in terms of adverse events, no serious adverse events. There were quite a few adverse events, as you might imagine, um, and uh, following the reinfusion. These were mostly mild. A few were moderate. They were uh, the usual that you would expect from something like this, chills, fever, headache, and so on. An interesting thing about um, garlic body odor. So you probably don't want to stay in the exam room with a closed door too long with these patients. Um, unclear whether this is a permanent defect or not. Um, and, uh, and otherwise, uh, there were no significant safety issues. And so this is a slide, again, a complicated slide, that in these six patients shows the survival or the estimated survival of the cells that had modification in the two alleles of CCR5. And so what you see here, this is the treatment interruption period. Here's where they give the cells. Of course, they go up. And they do come down, but they do persist. Now, I'm going to show you several slides, and I would ask you to pay attention to Mr. Green Man right here, okay? Because he's special. He's a special guy. He is a heterozygote for CCR5, so he already naturally has one deletion in the CCR5 gene. Okay, and then they look at what happens with HIV RNA during treatment interruption. And this is the treatment interruption period. It ends about here. Um, everyone goes back on treatment after treatment interruption. Some people went back on treatment earlier than predicted because of high rises in viral load. Um, and Mr. Green guy here, um, he had a spike in viral load that spontaneously came down. And in fact, he became aviremic. And at the end of treatment interruption, he was aviremic. And these are his data specifically. And you can see the rise in his CD4 cell count. That's the blue line, which was maintained. This is out to 140 days. 
These are the modified cells in the red line, which were maintained, again, out to about 140 days. And here is his viral load, and that's the black line. So remember, all of these people were suppressed. Their viral load was suppressed when they started. He had the big bump in HIV RNA after treatment interruption and an equally steep decline, and he was aviremic at the end of treatment interruption. Because of the way the protocol was written, he was required to go back on therapy, so he did go back on therapy. So we have no way of knowing how long this might have been preserved. But what's interesting about it is that this guy, who already had one deletion, had the most dramatic response of all. And so now the company has added another cohort to the study, and they are actually looking for people who have that deletion to see what their response is, to see if this is something that's typical. So I think this is very interesting. I mention it just because, you know, we're in a new frontier, and we need to look at as many different tools as we can. So a very fascinating study, and stay tuned. So I would like to thank many people who provided slides for me, and I would like to thank you all for your attention. Thank you very much. Thanks, Melanie. That was great. I have a go-back-to-your-case. I know that not everybody could see the total case, but what if her viral load was less than 100,000? And what if you felt she was going to have good adherence, but she's thinking of getting pregnant maybe? She's recently married. So any concerns about Milpivirine in that case? Well, I think this sets up a situation where you'd be more likely to choose Milpivirine because of the viral load. So viral load less than 100,000 tended to do better in terms of the resistance profile and so on. The issue of pregnancy, I think, is an interesting issue because, you know, we're all looking for some way around that pregnancy issue with efavirenz. We know that we have data about efavirenz in pregnancy. We'd like not to use it in women who plan to get pregnant. We don't have data about Milpivirine, so I think it puts us in a data-free zone, and that's not the same thing as saying that we really ought to be using it in pregnant women or women who are going to get pregnant. So I think the answer is I don't know because we don't have data. But just a caution against thinking that because it's not efavirenz, you know, it's an NNRTI that we could use in women who are pregnant or going to get pregnant. I think it's a little premature to really know that. Hi, Rajiv Fernando from Southampton Hospital. The zinc finger nucleases talk is very fascinating. My question is, in the setting of, let's say, long-standing HIV, if somebody develops an X4 receptor, I mean, how would you use that in this setting? I don't think that person would probably be the best candidate. In fact, they certainly wouldn't be allowed into this kind of a study because the zinc finger proteins and the zinc finger nuclease complex is really targeted for CCR5. And so what you're doing is sort of decreasing the ability of HIV to bind to CCR5. 
But if you have someone who's predominantly X4 anyway, then that's really not their issue. So, you know, maybe they'll come up with the CXCR4, you know, uh, nuclease uh, that would do the same thing. But I don't know. It's an interesting question. Uh, would it be reasonable to obtain tropism assay before in a patient with long-standing HIV before initiating this kind of therapy? Well, I think it's very premature to initiate this kind of therapy anyway, but you oh, can just, be absolutely just thinking, sure. Ahead, at, thinking ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. I think, you know, this is it's just like using a CCR5 inhibitor, um, although a little bit more complex. Um, but, you know, you don't want to use a CCR5 inhibitor unless you really know that that person is, is predominantly, um, overwhelmingly CCR5 tropic. So I think that the same would apply for this. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. The next question. Um, with Cobisistat coming out relatively uh, soon, and we'll probably be using it with Truvada, especially in the quad, if we do have a false, well, false um, in elevation of serum creatinine, how and when would you recommend adjusting tenofovir for renal adjustments? Do we have to worry about that? Uh, what if it's because of tenofovir that the serum creatinine went up? Can you comment on that, please? Yeah, I think it goes back to Joel's talk this morning. Um, because we know that uh, we do have this sort of false positive elevation in creatinine sometimes. And, and I, think, um, I think it's going to be a little bit tough. I think we're going to need some, some better methodology for sorting that out. Um, as, as was mentioned, one thing you can do uh, is to look at the nature of the renal insufficiency. Uh, to, you know, certainly, I think if somebody ends up popping their creatinine up substantially, you're going to worry about that person. These tend to be fairly mild increases in creatinine. But I'd also look at the urine to see if there is any evidence in the urine that this person has a tubular problem that is consistent with Hanconi syndrome. Uh, consistent with tenofovir and so on. And I think those people you, you clearly would want to be very careful with. Um, so, you know, I think doing, uh, you can do your 24-hour urine creatinine clearances and that sort of thing. I, sorting out what is tenofovir nephrotoxicity and what is not in general, I think, is a little bit more complex because, you know, these studies that we do, they don't have all of these difficult patients in them who have diabetes and hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and they're on all these millions of drugs. So we're kind of looking at uh, a population. I guess I just got cut off. No, maybe not. Okay, a couple of quick ones. Um, another blast from the past. In 1990, there was a study from Japan um, that was using quinolones, showing there was some in vitro HIV suppression. Any new information about this? Anybody looking at quinolones? Interesting. I, I couldn't say that nobody's looking at quinolones. I have not heard of anybody looking to make uh, quinolones into HIV drugs, um, so I, I have to plead ignorance on that. Yeah. If anybody else has any information, glad for you to share it at this time. I mean, I think there's been other antibiotics. Remember, there was this sulfur story, too, in, in yeah. vitro. And, you know, obviously we know that wasn't true from uh, we had sulfur before we had the other ARVs. But, but um, I think the interesting thing about cyclovir is that, you know, yeah. it's, it's in the same class. Right. I mean, the, the drug has a similar mechanism of action. So it's not something like the quinolone that has a totally different mechanism of action that you sort of have to stretch your mind around how this would inhibit HIV. But... You know, a cyclovir, you can kind of get that story and how it might work. Whether it does or not, we'll see. 
Lasiverine, can it be used with a K103 mutation or any other mutations we know anything about? Um, you know, with a single K103, it seems to have activity. The, um, we get into trouble when we have multiple mutations with Lasiverine. That's really, that's really where the trouble comes. So you have to look beneath that 103 mutation to be sure there's nothing else lurking that would be problematic. Okay, we'll do one more question. I know there's some other questions, but again, you can reach Dr. Thompson um, at the next break. Um, anything about a compassionate use program for L. Vitagravir or the quad? Um, gosh, compassionate use, that almost seems like uh, a blast from the past, too. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, most of the companies provide indigent assistance programs. I think that's kind of what compassionate, compassionate use was, was really pre, um, it, it was in the early days and it was really pre-approval, uh, parallel track or whatever. So the drugs were made available for people in greatest need uh, before they were approved. And I think the approval of this drug is likely imminent, so it's not so much of an issue. <coughs> Excuse me. But I, you know, I suspect they will have an indigent program like they do for all the other drugs. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.